We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right In a previous program, I talked about how Kaiser Wilhelm II, well before the Great War, has positively drooled at the thought of winning Jewish favour and support. The Kaiser was definitely anti-Semitic. He believed in the international Jewish conspiracy, but vast amounts of money were waiting there to be tapped by a friend of the Jews, him for Germany. He'd met with Sultan Abdul Hamed to plead the Jewish cause, but without success. It was now 1917 and things had changed a lot since the Kaiser's meeting before the war. The British were advancing towards Jerusalem, not perhaps the best time to make an offer that Theodore Herzl had wanted him to make back in the 1800s, but desperate times call for desperate measures. Zionism, after all, had been born in Austria. The headquarters for the Zionist movement up to 1914 had been in Berlin, with prodding from the Germans in August 1917, Jamal Pasha, the tyrant of Jerusalem, visited Berlin. He met with German Zionists and the Ottoman Grand Vizier Talat Pasha. Jamal reluctantly agreed to promote a Jewish national home. A kind of chartered company was offered for German Zionists with a limited form of local self-government and right of immigration. News of this reached the halls of power in London. They'd been thinking along the same lines, but they were now in a much better position to really do something because General Allenby, with his army, was approaching Jerusalem. The name most closely associated with the move that the British now decided to make was Lord Balfour. And it's now time to tell you how the English came to think that it was a good idea to create a homeland for the Jews, not on their traditional lands, but instead in Uganda. It had been nearly 1,300 years since the Jewish homeland had been conquered and occupied by Muslims in 635 AD. The Jews had lived there since at least 1,406 BC, over 2,000 years before the Muslim conquest armies arrived. Then many of the Jews had hung on in their holy lands, but under very difficult and increasingly difficult circumstances. They'd been subjected to brutal treatment under their Muslim rulers that was notorious throughout Europe in the 1800s. But there were encouraging statements being made in Germany, England, France and Russia about giving the Jews some independence, give them back their homeland that they hadn't had for so long. Yasser Arafat often said that it was a lie that the Jews had lived in the land before the arrival of the Muslims. But with every swing of a spade by an archaeologist on a dig in Palestine, remnants of the Jewish past are unearthed. Every village carries a barely altered original Hebrew name of old. 
the Arabic name differs only slightly. The first Ottoman census taken in 1844 showed that there were more Jews living in Jerusalem than Arabs, 7,120 compared to 5,760. In 1893, the population of Palestine was 153,031 people, with the Jews, the single largest group, making up about 59,431 there were 55,823 Muslims and 37,852 Christians and others. England made its first move, a strange move, towards creating a homeland for the Jews in 1903. Lord Balfour was then the Prime Minister of England. He'd come up with a solution to the Jews' needs for their own homeland, Uganda. I'm sure that the Ugandans would not have been happy about it. I'm also sure that the Muslims would have been happy with it. Which goes to show, you can't please everyone. Or, you can please some of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. He put this proposal to Dr. Chaim Weizmann. Dr. Weizmann had a quick counter to this proposal, which led to the following exchange. Mr. Balfour, supposing I were to offer you Paris instead of London, would you take it? But, Dr. Wiseman, we have London. True, but we have had Jerusalem when London was a marsh. Are there many Jews who think like you? I speak the mind of millions of Jews. Balfour was impressed, but added, Curious? The Jews I meet are quite different. Mr. Wiseman answered Mr. Balfour, who knew that most Anglo-Jewish grandees scorned Zionism. You meet the wrong kind of Jews. On 13 March 1916, Sir George Buchanan, Great Britain's ambassador to Petrograd, formerly Leningrad, St. Petersburg at the moment, and asked what the Russian reaction would be to a Zionist homeland. In December 1916, Asquith's government fell. Lloyd George became the Prime Minister. He appointed Lord Balfour as the Foreign Secretary. Lloyd George was described as the greatest war leader since Chatham. He and Balfour would do whatever was necessary to win the war. At this vital moment in this long and terrible struggle against Germany, their peculiar attitudes to the Jews and the special coincidence of circumstances of 1917 merged to convince Lloyd George and Balfour that Zionism was essential to help Britain win the war. The press was also picking up on this new feeling. The London Times, on 30th March 1917, called for the liberation of the Jews in Palestine. The London Daily Chronicle of 30 March 1917 declared that a Zionist state under British protection had much to commend it. The Jewish farming settlements established over the last nearly 40 years in Palestine had been plundered by the Turks during the war to meet the needs of that war and out of sheer bastardry that was fundamental to Muslim-Jewish relations. The New Europe English newspaper, published on 19 April 1917, said a British Palestine must be a Jewish Palestine. Things were shifting in the war with the players. America entered the war in the spring of 1917. The Russian Revolution removed the Emperor Nicholas II in October 1917. 
A key British official said, It's clear Her Majesty's government were mainly concerned how Russia was to be kept in the ranks of the Allies, and as for America, it is supposed American opinion might be favourably influenced if the return of the Jews to Palestine became a purpose of British policy. Balfour, on the eve of visiting America, told colleagues that the vast majority of Jews in Russia and America now appear favourable to Zionism. If Britain could make a pro-Zionist declaration, we should be able to carry on extremely useful propaganda, both in Russia and America. The British plans to announce their formal recognition of the renewed Jewish National Liberation Movement in Palestine was, of practical necessity, delayed until the success of General Allenby's invasion of Palestine seemed assured. But the pressure for an earlier recognition of a Jewish homeland mounted when the British learned in August 1917 that the Germans were about to make their own announcement about the creation of a Jewish homeland. Finally, on 2 November 1917, with the approval of the United States, the British released a policy statement in the form of a letter from Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Lord Arthur James Balfour, to Lord Rothschild. It read, I have much pleasure conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's Government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. On 14 February 1918, the French government endorsed what was contained in that letter, followed by the Italian government on 9 May 1918. It was all starting to happen. I should make an important comment on one of the provisions in the letter that still impacts on our world today. The Jews were required not to prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. This was going to be an ongoing obligation that the Jews have observed. No one has ever even suggested a reciprocal obligation on the Muslims, and the Jews have never had such treatment from the Muslims. Quite the opposite. What was the precise land that was going to be given to the Jews as their homeland? British historian Arthur Toynbee, in a minute to the British Foreign Office on 2 December 1918, wrote, It might be equitable to include in Palestine that part which lies east of the Jordan stream, at present desolate, but capable of supporting a large population, if irrigated and cultivated scientifically. The Zionists have as much right to this no-man's land as the Arabs, or more, Modern-day Jordan, like modern-day Israel, had become, under the Muslim conquerors, finally ending with the last Muslim rulers, the Ottoman Empire, a desert wasteland with a tiny population. 
The Arab leader, Sharif Hussein, observed on 23 March 1918, the resources of the country are still virgin soil and will be developed by the Jewish immigrants. One of the most amazing things until recent times was that the Palestinians used to leave his country, wandering over the high seas in every direction. His native soil could not retain its hold on him. The land that was included in the new homeland for the Jews were the historic lands that they had possessed in the Old Testament. These were lands east and west of the Jordan River, including all of modern Jordan. So much was stated in the memorandum by Lord Balfour on 26 June 1919, in which he said, In determining the Palestinian frontiers, the main thing to keep in mind is to make a Zionist policy possible by giving the fullest scope to economic development in Palestine. Thus, the northern frontier should give to Palestine a full command of the water power, which geographically belongs to Palestine and not to Syria, while the eastern frontier should be so drawn as to give the widest scope to agricultural development on the left bank of the Jordan, consistent with leaving the Hejaz Railway completely in Arab possession. So now only a couple of things needed to be done for this to happen. One was for the Allies to beat Germany and its allies. Even at the end of 1917, the war could still have gone either way. Then, after the war, the world would have to establish the provisions that would see this become reality. What were the British expectations? The reality of the Muslim contribution to the victory of the Allies over Germany, Austria and the Ottoman Empire, particularly in relation to the British fighting in the Middle East, was that either they had overwhelmingly fought for the Ottoman Empire against England, or a small group of Arabs under the Sharif of Mecca had been ready to fight the Ottoman Empire, but only to preserve his rule over his part of Arabia before World War I had begun, and who knows, maybe grab some more land. The British, with the charismatic presence of Lawrence of Arabia helped the Arab revolt. Lawrence's name, reputation and sympathies for the Arabs would see them repaid beyond any reasonable and proportionate return for their meagre contribution to the victory in World War I. Lloyd George, the World War I wartime Prime Minister of England from 1916, wrote in his book, The Truth About the Peace Treaties, which was published in 1938, no race has ever done better out of the fidelity with which the Allies redeemed their promises to the oppressed races than the Arabs. The Arabs have already won independence in Iran, Arabia, Syria, and Transjordania, although most of the Arab races fought throughout the war for their Turkish oppressors. Arabia was the only exception in that respect, the Palestinian Arabs fought for Turkish rule. The point has been made in an earlier program that Muslims did not identify at all with the Western concept of the nation-state. The faith of Islam was what united Muslims. A former Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire said in 1917, The fatherland of a Muslim is the place where the holy law of Islam prevails. It was not the place that the Muslim was living at at the time. 
British-American historian Bernard Lewis expressed the idea like this. A Muslim Iraqi would feel far closer bonds with a non-Iraqi Muslim than with a non-Muslim Iraqi. The imported Western idea of ethnic and territorial nationhood remains, like secularism, alien and incompletely assimilated. Lord Robert Cecil, a British Foreign Office expert on the Middle East, wrote, Our wish is that the Arab country shall be for the Arabs, Armenia for the Armenians, and Judea for the Jews. So now peace talks at Versailles had to address the future of the Jewish homeland. The peace conference began to conduct its business in Paris on 18 January 1919. Its business was to reorganise much of the world, of which the new homeland for the Jews was a tiny part. The Zionists were given the right to take part at the negotiation table, as were the Arabs. Before the beginning of the Treaty of Versailles peace talks, the Jews and the Muslims signed an agreement that called for the closest possible collaboration between the Jewish and Arab peoples in the development of the Arab state and Palestine. The constitution of Palestine should afford the fullest guarantees for carrying into effect the British government's Balfour Declaration of 2 November 1917, and that all necessary measures shall be taken to encourage and stimulate immigration of Jews into Palestine on a large scale. The Zionist organization agreed to use its best efforts to assist the Arab state in providing the means for developing the natural resources and economic possibilities thereof. The Arab and Jewish peoples also undertake to act in complete accord before the Peace Congress. Thanks to this agreement between the Muslims and the Jews, the peace talks didn't have to concern themselves with Muslim claims to the Jewish homeland of the British Mandate, because there were no such claims challenging the creation of the full Jewish homeland. No Muslim leaders came forward at the peace talks, or in Palestine, to raise any objections to the creation of the Jewish homeland. On 21 January 1921, again at the peace talks, the United States delegate concerning a Jewish national home declared that there be established a separate state of Palestine placed under Great Britain as a mandatory of the League of Nations, that the Jews be invited to return to Palestine and settle there, and being further assured that it will be the policy of the League of Nations to recognize Palestine as a Jewish state, as soon as it is a Jewish state in fact. England, as mandatory, can be relied on to give the Jews the privileged position they should have without sacrificing the religious and property rights of non-Jews. On 23 February 1919, Chaim Weizmann, Sokolo Nahum, and other Zionist delegate members were given a chance to speak. Sokolo pressed the representatives to acknowledge the right of the Jews to rebuild their national homeland in Palestine. He referred to the Balfour Declaration and requested that the region proposed in that declaration be given to England to be known as the British Mandate 
that mandate was to be ultimately under the supervision of the League of Nations. In March 1919, Faisal wrote to Felix Frankfurter, a member of the American delegation at the peace talks, saying, Our deputation here in Paris is fully acquainted with the proposals submitted yesterday by the Zionist organization to the peace conference, and we regard them as moderate and proper. We will wish the Jews a hearty welcome home. And how? Mandate was a word that American President Woodrow Wilson found acceptable. He didn't want new colonies to be carved out of the spoils of war by the European powers. The mandates were intended to be temporary and given their independence as soon as possible. The British in the League of Nations knew that some of the local Palestinian Arabs were resisting the proposal for a small part of the Middle East to be excluded from being part of an Arab state so that a Jewish homeland would be created there. Full civil rights had been guaranteed to the Muslims who would be living in the Jewish state, something not accorded even today to Jews living in Arab states. And since Palestine contained not much more than 5% of the millions of Arabs that Britain had just liberated from the Ottoman Empire, Lord Balfour insisted that a compromise such as Faisal's was perfectly fair. Balfour said that Zionism is rooted in age-old traditions in present needs in future hopes of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. So, the peace conference made these determinations. The peace conference, after hearing all that was said by all of the interested parties who had a chance to speak, including Jews and Muslims, decided, one, that the historic right of the Jewish people to re-establishment of its national home in Palestine be recognised for all times as incontestable and that all possible assistance be given to facilitate the achievement of this object. That with this ultimate purpose in view, the country of Palestine, with its historical boundaries to be defined by a special commission, shall at present be entrusted to the care of Great Britain, which in its capacity of trustee shall place the country under such conditions political, administrative, economic, etc., as will lead to the steady enlargement and development of the Jewish settlements, so that it may ultimately develop into a Jewish commonwealth on national lines, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which will prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Finally, after nearly 1,300 years of occupation by the Muslims, it was looking like the Jews were going to get the promised land back. The final decision on this was going to be made at the San Remo Conference, which was to be held between 18 and 26 April 1920. That decided what land would make up the new Jewish homeland, and have I got some surprises for you about what the Jews were promised and what they got from the British. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. 
probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.